Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of the Top 250 Podcast. I'm Sam Kane. Our movie today is uh, a classic film starring Brad Dorff. It's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Jack Nicholson, Danny DeVito, Christopher Lloyd, the principal from High School High, the principal from the original Carrie, Pluto from the original Hills Have Eyes, the teacher from Better Off Dead and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Scatman Crothers, Inspector Flanagan from Shining Time Station, and Will Sampson. Oh, and uh, by the way, I have uh, one of our regulars here today. It's Nick Watson. Hey, how's it going, Nick? It's going pretty well. Uh, I, too, would describe this as a movie starring Brad Dorif and also with Jack Nicholson, you know? I, I think that's the, the star that most people would think of first when they remember this movie. Oh, instantly. It was his first movie. It was his film debut, Brad Dorif. <laughs> Billy Babbitt. All right. <laughs> Anyways, when, when did you first see this? So uh, when I was in college, we all had to take a, a writing class, and I don't really like writing. So I, I picked the topic that looked the best, and so I ended up taking a writing class on 70s film. And so part of the curriculum um, of this class involved watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, among other such great films as A Clockwork Orange, The Godfather, Etc. Barry Lyndon was there as well. I remember you telling me about this class. Yeah, uh, that that one was a little slow, but uh, yeah, most of the most of the films were great, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was uh, probably one of the highlights um, of the class. And uh, I probably wrote something about it way back, but I don't really remember. <laughs> yeah, I um, so I saw it. I want to say uh, after my freshman year in high school, because I was a big Jack Nicholson fan at the time. Uh, always loved The Shining, and yeah, I love him. And then you look at the cast, you see all the people in it, and you're like, oh, I got to check this out. So many uh, people just starting off their careers here. Um, I think Danny DeVito was actually in... Uh, the off-Broadway production of this, and um, he knew Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas actually produced this film, believe it or not. He's, Michael? Wait, how old was Michael Douglas in 1975? Uh, he was probably like, he was probably a young guy. 20s, 30s maybe? I think he's born in the early 1940s. Maybe um, it was Gordon Gecko who actually financed this movie. <laughs> It could be. It could be. So, uh, Michael Douglas's dad, Kirk Douglas, acted in the uh, Broadway play of uh, the film. Well, originally it was uh, a novel released in 1962 by Ken Kesey. hope I'm pronouncing his name right. But uh, later it was adapted into a Broadway play by Dale Wasserman. Um and uh, Kirk starred in it, and he actually wanted to make a movie out of it and uh, star in it himself, Kirk Douglas. Um, so he he actually brought it to a certain director's attention that I will bring up later, but he, uh, Kirk could not get financing for the film, and eventually he either sold it or gave the rights 
to uh, his son Michael. I, I've seen multiple sources of whether he straight up sold it or just gave the rights to his son. But uh, So yeah, then Michael Douglas had the rights to the movie. And uh, this director I mentioned earlier would be none other than uh, Czechoslovakian new wave director uh, Milos Forman. Um, apparently, and this is what I've read, uh, Douglas was uh, aware of Foreman's work and sent over, the Kirk Douglas was aware of Foreman's work and sent over a draft of the script to Czechoslovakia. This is back when Milos Foreman still lived there. And, and back when it was still called Czechoslovakia. Right. <laughs> uh, and allegedly the script never made it to Foreman, and it's assumed that the the customs there confiscated it. And for years, uh, Douglas and Milos Foreman just assumed they, they blew each other off. Like, you know, Milos think that Kirk never sent the script, and then Kirk was mad that he never got any feedback on the script. So that was that. And then, um, you know, years later, his son, uh, Michael, ended up uh, reaching out to him and Milos was like, "Oh yeah, I never got the script, but yeah, this this does seem does seem good." And uh, eventually, they were able to produce it. But um, yeah, there was some controversy on set. Nicholson didn't really get along with Foreman. They stopped speaking halfway through the movie. Foreman would uh, often be filming actors when they were unaware that the camera was on them, especially for the scenes where they're doing the group therapy. A lot of the actors had no idea they were being filmed. In fact, um, I think there's a reaction shot uh, from Louise Fletcher, plays um, Nurse Ratched, um, you know, kind of like taking direction from Foreman and like, Getting having like a really pissed off reaction by what he said, and it's actually in the movie <laughs> as one of her reactions to like something the patient says or whatever. Yeah, I mean, why not? You know, if you can get an authentic reaction that way, go for it. I don't know. Definitely. So, do you know where this was filmed? Want to take a guess? Maine. Maine? Eh, pretty good guess. Uh, Oregon. No, it, it, it's good. Stand by me was, uh, I think, took place in Maine, and they filmed it in Oregon to make it look like Maine. I think. Yeah, they call Oregon the Maine of the West Coast. Yeah, they, they don't. <laughs> it was a real mental institution, in Oregon. Um. And there was actually a lot of patients that played extras in the movie. Some of them even worked on the crew, believe it or not. And uh, yeah, some of some of the crew members found out like later on, like that they worked with people who were legitimately uh, criminally insane, and they had no idea. <laughs> so that's interesting. I feel like that's something that you probably should tell <laughs> you know I'm all, I'm all for like you know ha letting them work you know if, if that is helpful or, or good but you know you feel like if they're still 
considered criminally insane. That's probably something that uh, the cast and crew would have a right to know. Yeah, kind of asking for a lawsuit with that one there. Yeah. But, you know, the 70s, they were uh, very rebellious. Tried a bunch of different things. Lobotomies. Yeah, lobotomies. Good God. Apparently, uh, Jack Nicholson and Louise Fletcher actually saw, um, well, not not a lobotomy, but they saw someone get an electric shock therapy um, when they were doing research for the role. They were they were both like they both went to. I don't know if it was this particular mental institution they filmed at, or if it was another one, but they saw it being done on someone. And well. Interesting thing about that electric shock therapy, or they call it electroconvulsive therapy nowadays, is still a valid treatment. Um, like that's that one is generally considered fine. It kind of looks a little bit scary, but um, like patients these days, they're all anesthetized before they have it, so there's no pain, and um, it's actually apparently used as a fairly effective treatment for really serious depression or schizophrenia or other types of mental conditions that aren't um, responding to uh, drugs. And like, it kind of makes sense in the, in that your brain sort of functions off of just different electrical signals that are being sent around at the wrong times, essentially, if you're having, have a mental condition. And so I think it sort of maybe acts as a way to disrupt some of those errant electrical signals. So they do still use it today. Um, and however, it requires a patient's consent or if they're truly insane, the consent of their guardian mm. or, or, or medical proxy. And in cases where perhaps there isn't one, you're required to get a court order for it. So it's not like they can just get upset with you like they did in the movie and then drag you into a room and stick some electrodes to your head. Uh, so that doesn't, that isn't allowed. Um, yeah. I don't know whether it would have been allowed in 1975. I, I just know that I looked it up for how it's done today. Well, they definitely don't do uh, lobotomies, any, or I, I don't right. think they do. They don't. They don't do lobotomies anymore. I mean, it's generally considered amongst medical professionals to be a barbaric relic of the past. Yeah. Um, there were even calls to like revoke the Nobel Prize from the guy who discovered it and advocated it. Um, he got a Nobel Prize. Yeah, I mean, they, well, they thought. I mean, they thought about it back in. I think it was like the World War II or even you know interwar era back then. I mean, who knows? They thought that measuring the size of your skull could determine how smart you were. So you know, we've we've come a long way. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think they've been done a lobotomy in the United States since like 1977. Because um, it it really is just awful. Now, did you know beforehand this was a book? I did. I haven't read it. Yeah, it's different. It's um, The book's actually from the chief's perspective. He's the narrator, believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And he's basically sharing with us uh, what's going on between Ratchet and McMurphy. Uh, He's also a paranoid schizophrenic in the book. Uh, It's not... they don't really give much of a, a backstory here um, in the movie, but I guess he uh, he was an Indian. And I think um, that the title of the book, which was also the title for the movie, of course, uh, 
Yeah, so it comes from a nursery rhyme read to the chief by his grandmother. It's mentioned in the book. Vintery, mintery, cuttery corn, apple seed and apple thorn, wire, briar, limber lock, three geese in a flock, one flew west, one flew east, one flew west, and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Huh. It's interesting, though. In, in the book, if he was a paranoid schizophrenic, I mean... That, I mean, I haven't read it, but that, I mean, that screams unreliable uh, narrator. Right, right. There's a question, I guess, of, I mean, you know, how much of it is real and how much of it is in his head. Um, so, I mean, that could be an interesting read. I mean, that probably makes the book worth reading, uh, even even despite having seen the film. Yeah, it, it uh... It looks like the book really sticks to like the themes for the most part, but there's definitely a bunch of differences. Uh, McMurphy is uh, definitely more softened in the film. They don't say in the book why he's in the mental institution. I think you just assume he's like faking it, whatever. But in the movie, I mean, something that really didn't age well is that apparently he was with a 15-year-old. And I'm sure if they made this movie now, they would not want the protagonist to have any involvement uh, yeah, they, romantically they, they with a 15 year old. In order to make the character sympathetic, you have to say that he like he punched the guy in the face who who suggested that um, you know immigrants shouldn't be able to take jobs or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> or you know, yeah, so, some crazy like that. He, he punched a Trump supporter in the face. Oh, yeah. Prison. yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah, that that would be why. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that whole that conversation was pretty cringy, actually. Yeah, <laughs> not good. Um, so Cheswick, you know Cheswick in the movie, the guy who wants his cigarettes, my cigarettes. <laughs> um, he, uh, I mean, obviously it's a spoilers, guys. So if you haven't read the book read it now or or turn off the podcast uh cheswick drowns himself in the book um and then there's also a character named big george that isn't in the movie who's obsessed with cleaning and um yeah there's some some other clear differences. I guess the, the fishing trip was actually planned in the book, whereas in the movie, like, it, the hospital planned for them to, to go on it, which seems kind of odd. Why would you want to take people from an institution fishing? Yeah, I mean, those hooks are sharp. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I actually, I like the way they did it um, in the movie. Uh, I mean, it, it also kind of set up the fact that Again, McMurphy had an opportunity to escape, but chose not to and chose to hang out, you know, with his friends, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it shows he really cares about him. Uh, so, you know, that was nice. I also completely forgot about that scene, like from having seen it, uh, I don't know, when I see it, 2009, say, it like completely forgot that scene existed. In fact, I was watching, I was like, am I watching the director's cut or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a very notable scene. I love the part where 
McMurphy introduces everyone as doctors <laughs> and <laughs> and the re- the looks on everyone's faces it ca- it kind of makes you as the audience see it and you're just like oh yeah that guy does kind of look like a doctor right there <laughs> well, except for Harding who he introduces as Mr. Harding <laughs> <laughs> and then he gives him a look <laughs> <clears throat> yeah no that was, that was a nice sequence um now what do you what do you think about nurse ratchet would you say there's a lot of debate here would you say she's truly an evil person or just a woman that was uh you know raised a certain way and kind of stuck in uh the old ways of the past uh, I think she's evil. I mean, evil is maybe not the word I'd use, but I, I think she basically, she does not abide anybody challenging her authority. And when someone does challenge her authority, she makes it her mission to break them. And I think that's what happened with her and McMurphy. I mean, there there are moments when McMurphy is going off where it's like, I think I wrote, I wrote something down here, actually, which was right. <clears throat> there, There's a close-up of Nurse Ratchet's face when McMurphy is sort of broadcasting or fake broadcasting the uh, World Series game. And there's just this look on her face, and which I marked down as the moment she resolves to destroy him. And it, it was like, she just, she can't abide someone disrupting the order of her hospital. I mean, it, it, you're going to get the idea that, like, the doctor is the doctor but he doesn't really he's very detached he doesn't really give a shit about any of the patients um and so he's sort of just the the guy doing the studying and she's the one who actually runs the hospital and you know it's another another note i made for anyone who've uh who's seen uh unforgiven nurse ratchet reminds me quite a lot of the sheriff in unforgiven the one who uh doesn't was it, he doesn't want assassins in his town but it's it's more of a question of challenging his authority rather than what they're actually doing and i, I don't know i thought i thought that was kind of a nice parallel between uh, i think it was gene hackman who was the the sheriff in unforgiven and uh louis fletcher there i yeah. don't know that was an observation that i made i've never seen unforgiven that uh I mean that's a very highly rated movie. It might even be on the top two fifty. I'd have to double check, but um, yeah, it's definitely one I need to watch. It's a great movie. Um, yeah, she really had just a almost autocratic authority. I'd say very yeah, domineering. I, mean, I, I personally, I think that at at the end of the film, after when she's scolding Billy for having sex. Um, I, I think that she threatens to tell his mother as a way essentially to make McMurphy feel bad. Like, I don't think that's about Billy. I think Billy is just a pawn in in the, you know, the chess game between McMurphy and Nurse Ratchet. You know, I don't necessarily think that she was trying to get him to kill himself, but I think that the whole intent there was to you know, show that, you know, okay, McMurphy, you built up this this man. He he was a boy. You've built him into a man. Look how easily I'll reduce him to a crying child again. And I, I think that was just all part of their battle. It was a proxy war through Billy. 
and Nurse Ratchet was showing that she still had power over him. That, that no, that's that's good. I didn't I didn't think of it that way, but I'm I'm glad you uh, you brought that up. Yeah, definitely, definitely would make sense. It's God, what a messed up scene that is. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, McMurphy shows his his true colors when he again has opportunities to escape, but chooses to come back to check on Billy. I mean, he really does like the kid. That's right. Yeah, he was right out the window, and he's just like, "Oh man, what happened?" Plus, he couldn't miss Brad Dorif's, you know, final scene. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Best actor in the movie, almost. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, you know, I, I think yeah. So that that my conclusion is definitely that Nurse Ratchet is an autocrat and does not abide anyone challenging her yeah and then she always had that nurse next to her but she would never say anything she's just standing there I just, she's she's like clearly a part of the shot it's like I'm waiting for her to chime in like why do they keep showing her but they yeah. needed someone to find the body at the end yeah <laughs> I guess so yeah so it wasn't the easiest shoot, but hey, it ended up being worth it in the end. It won five Oscars, uh, best uh, picture, best actor, uh, Jack Nicholson, uh, best actress, Louise Fletcher, best director, Melise, uh, Milos Foreman, um, and then Brad Dorff was nominated as best supporting actor. He didn't win. Um, it also got best uh, screenplay. It won best screenplay. So it uh, it did very well, and it also made a hundred and sixty three million dollars in the box office. So in in nineteen seventy five, yeah, which is a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of money. That's yeah, inflation. That would be a lot of money. And uh, apparently Nicholson was really the only one who got paid a substantial salary on the movie. Louise Fletcher was paid only $10,000 for about 11 weeks of work. So what do you think What do you think that's today? $10,000 in the 70s to today for inflation. I, he's a math guy. That's why I'm putting him on the spot here. I, I have no idea. I don't know what... Uh, I'm just going to go on the inflation calculator and we're going to say... No excuse. You're a math major. I purchased an item for $10,000 and this $48,000. So let's call it 5X. So we'll say 50000 Pathetic. 50000 50000 Not horrible for 11 weeks of work, but... Oh, sure. I mean, I would take it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think... You're talking about, like, a, an actor in a, a movie that would live on through the ages and win Academy Awards. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Louise Fletcher actually won the Oscar, so... Yeah, and she didn't really do too many movies or, or too many notable roles after this one. In fact, I referenced her as the principal from High School High in the intro, which was uh, 
basically a, a John Lovitz spoof movie where it, it makes fun of uh, all the uh, teachers who go into, um, you know, um, lower income uh, neighborhood schools, uh, making fun of like Dangerous Minds, movies like that. Huh. That reminds me of a funny key. I think it was Key and Peele skit that I saw about uh, inner city Hogwarts. Yeah, inner city. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, which was very funny. Key and Peele was uh, right. good stuff. Um, any other any other notable things in the movie you want to bring up? Well, I mean, <clears throat> there's a, I mean the certain amount of foreshadowing that occurs in the movie. I don't know if we're, if we really want to get, get into that, but like, I mean, foreshadowing of the ending when, when chief like throws the, I don't know what that was, a water, like a sink. Yeah. <laughs> or something. Fountain, whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, you know, early on, like when McMurphy's trying to do it, you can see, they show you chief who's sort of looking at it and it's like, he's, he knows what's going on. He's, you know, trying to suss out whether he can do that or, you know, when McMurphy returns after getting, uh, ECT and he sort of shuffles in and he looks trying to pretend to be all catatonic. And then he, he cracks up and that is like exactly how he gets brought in at the end of the film. Um, so, I mean, and, and another, actually, that leads me into another note that I made, which I don't think was very subtle. I mean, I don't think this is something that was, you know, anyway. Um, the fact that, you know, when Chief kills McMurphy at the end or, or euthanizes him, it's not just to put McMurphy out of his misery, though that is part of it. I think a lot of it is also to preserve the image of McMurphy and keep McMurphy alive as a, as a martyr uh, for the rest of the guys in the ward because they came to idolize him over the course of <clears throat> the film and seeing him catatonic at the end would be heartbreaking. Whereas, you know, now that he, he's dead, they basically, he lives on in their minds as the rowdy party cool guy. Mm -hmm. So that was another thing that I, I noted yeah, like I said earlier, they they make they really tone it down on McMurphy in the movie. I think he would actually in the book he would um steal money from like he he had no trouble like gambling and stealing money from these guys. I mean, you kind of see it at the beginning with the cigarettes, but it's it's apparently not as bad as it is in the book. They, well, it it Allowed for the best line of the whole movie, in my opinion. Delivered by Danny DeVito after Nurse Ratchet tells them all about rationing cigarettes. And DeVito goes, how are we going to win our money back? <laughs> Danny. <laughs> yeah. I got a little bit of Frank from Always Sunny. <laughs> Early Frank, yep. His first, Danny DeVito's first role. You know, Doc, that uh, that Nurse Ratchet, she's a bit of a... She's a sick broad. <laughs> Ain't she? <laughs> That's the perfect spot to end it. Right there.
Now, see this movie. It's good. If you haven't, I don't know. I mean, I saw it when I was 15. I would watch crazy movies that weren't dramas, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, ultimately a serious movie, but plenty of lighthearted moments uh, to enjoy as well. Um, yeah, it's highly recommended. and It's an absolute must for anyone who considers themselves uh, a movie buff. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Brad Dorf did a good job. Thank you for coming on, Nick. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah, it was my pleasure. Uh, yeah, till the next one. I'm sure you'll be on for another one. You're a regular at this point. Of course. I've yeah. seen a sizable portion of the top 250. Yeah, we'll get you on for Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs>